0: Well, you can open up your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. God's Word says in Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And thus ends this reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. Well, one of the most loving things you can do for others can also be one of the most offensive things for people to hear. Paul calls the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 foolish and offensive. And for the unbeliever, that's indeed what the gospel message is, foolish and offensive. Isaiah 8 and several other places in the Old Testament prophesies that the coming Messiah will be a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And you see, sharing the gospel is assuredly the greatest expression of love for those who do not belong to Christ. In spite of the stumbling and the rock of offense, in spite of the world's view of the gospel as foolish and offensive, it is the greatest expression of love that we can have. For what you do with Jesus, what you do with the gospel doesn't simply affect this life, but affects eternity. And so to genuinely love someone who doesn't know Jesus and let them march merrily, blissfully, ignorant to hell is not love. So why do we then not share the gospel with people as much as maybe we should? It's often because we love ourselves more, or maybe our reputation more with the world, or maybe we love our comfort of not being in the crosshairs of fire. To love, to love others, to love unbelievers, is to be vulnerable, open even to rejection. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, wrote, powerfully about the perils of genuine sacrificial Christian love. This is a famous quote and you may have heard it before, but I think it is very helpful for us in this context. C.S. Lewis writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your love will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. See, to truly love is to be vulnerable. See, vulnerable, sacrificial, genuine love opens you up to pain, heartbreak, and rejection. Especially especially when you do the most loving thing in the world. Share the glories of the gospel. So we ask ourselves, how can we stay motivated to share the gospel when it opens us up to possible pain? How are we convinced that we need to love the praise that comes from God more than the praise that comes from men? Perhaps we should think of it like this. Is it worse for someone to possibly get angry with us or to be damned to eternal hell? Or to put it in opposite terms, is it better for someone to be superficially happy with you or to be reconciled to the creator and have eternal life? And in the context of this church in Rome, questions like this were swirling around in the lives and the minds of the individuals and they inevitably had an ethnic component to them. You see, the church in Rome was one of the oldest churches established by Jewish converts to Christianity shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven. For decades, the church was primarily then Jewish and met in Jewish synagogues that had been converted to Christian churches. But you see, not all was calm in the church in Rome. Many Jews hated Jewish Christians for taking over the synagogues. And many Jews flat out and clearly rejected Christ, in fact, hated Christ. And things got so bad in the city of Rome that Emperor Claudius got word of the constant fighting in the Jewish quarters over someone that they called Christos, or the Christ, And so Emperor Claudius in AD 49 decided to banish all Jews from the city of Rome under threat of death. And so instantaneously, what once was predominantly a Jewish church in Rome became a Gentile church in Rome. And so Gentiles take over the churches and the churches grow dramatically without the Jews fighting. Gentile pastors and elders are now leading these growing churches and, and many have stayed in the old synagogues because the Jews had to abandon everything. And so Paul writes the book of Romans now about eight to nine years after the Jews were forced to leave. And some of the Jews have begun to start returning back to the city. And you can imagine, former Jewish Pastors and elders expect to come back and pick up where they left off. But as they come back, they find that their old churches feel very, very different. Some Jewish Christians are still clearly confused about just how Jewish Christianity needs to be, and so they come back and expect that the Gentile, new Gentile converts need to follow the law, or they aren't sure how much they need to follow the law, and they think they might need to follow the different Jewish festivals and feast days, but maybe they're wrestling through how much they should have to follow those. Romans 14 talks about that. Gentiles, too, start to question things like whether or not all this trouble with the Jews shows that God had rejected his people. And then along comes Paul, a Jew, who primarily ministers to Gentiles, and he writes this letter primarily, essentially, to ask for help on his way to minister to more Gentiles in Spain. Romans 15, 24 tells us this is Paul's plan. He, he wrote these things as a, as a missionary support letter. That's what the book of Romans is. He's headed on his way to Spain to, uh, to, to minister to Gentiles. And so the question has to be on the minds of all these Christians, does Paul even care about Jews? Does Paul even care about his people? And does God then care about Israel? And so Paul writes Romans 9, 10, and 11 to deal with these questions. And he starts off making sure that everyone knows that his zeal for the lost, that Paul's zeal for the lost is profound, both for Jews and Gentiles. And not only that, Paul wants to go to Spain, to the back country of the empire, to share the gospel with, with more Gentiles. And so he has an evangelistic fervor that starts this chapter. But before Paul gets to the, his missionary efforts to the unreached, he needs to make sure he addresses this Jewish-Gentile problem. That His motivation to share the gospel extends to everyone, but perhaps especially to the Jews, his kinsmen, his people. And so as we consider, if we truly love the lost ourselves, I want us to adopt two motives to share God's glorious gospel. There's going to be two simple reasons that we are motivated to love those without Christ so much that we can't help but share the gospel. I have a Spurgeon quote hanging up in my office, uh, framed. And it says, "If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies." It's a great quote. I remember in college, I put that quote up on my wall. I typed it up and just put it up in some, you know, weird font, and and there it was, posted on my wall. Every morning, I'd look up and I'd see, "If sinners are going to be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies." And that captures simply what is at stake when we decide to share or not to share the gospel. Our love for others should be so ignited by God's gospel love at work in our lives that Spurgeon imagines Christians throwing their bodies in the way of those marching steadily away from God. So if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And that's really Paul's heart here in verses one through three, where we see our first motive to share God's glorious gospel. Number one, is our great sorrow is men heading for hell. You see, our great sorrow should be that men are heading for hell. How many of you guys remember the far side cartoons? Right? I, I grew up watch, looking and not watching those. I grew up looking at those and reading those every week when we got to the, the funnies in the newspaper. And there are a lot of jokes in there about heaven and hell. Uh, some of their favorite ones was uh, the, the hell joke, where the maestro is led into his room by the devil only to see it is filled with prepubescent banjo players. No one wants to spend eternity with prepubescent banjo players. Another one imagines everyone is given an accordion in hell rather than a harp, because who wants to listen to that forever? But I I think there's something problematic when we see and read these cartoons, because hell, hell is not a joke. Hell is not a laugh line. Nor is hell Satan's domain, where he gets to torture people. The Bible tells us clearly Satan is roaring like a lion, roaming this earth, 1 Peter 5. See, hell is actually full of God's presence, his wrathful presence. Hell is where pure, just, holy wrath for sin is met out for eternity on all who have not trusted in Christ as a sacrifice for sins. Hell is no joking matter with banjo players or stage makeup with red faced creatures. In fact, hell and God's wrath is essentially where Paul begins Romans. It's essential, really, to understanding the gospel, understanding what we've been saved from. So go back to the beginning of Romans, real quick Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We see very early on, Paul mentioning the wrath of God. He says, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes on to say, what can be known about God it should be plain to them. But men are in the habit of suppressing the truth about God because they love their unrighteousness. And so God says very clearly, and Paul tells us very clearly, wrath of God is coming for those who do not trust and follow Christ. It is coming for all those who live in unrighteousness. And then he goes on and he talks about Jews in particular in Romans chapter 2. And he says, Romans chapter 2, things like this verse 5 But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, which when God brings righteous judgment, and it will be revealed. And then he goes on, uh, Romans 2, 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. You see, God's wrath in hell is not to be trifled with. It is deadly serious and eternally weighty it's this horrendous view of hell that moves Paul to what we are going to see in verse, in chapter 9 verse 2 a literal unceasing anguish of his soul so go back to uh, Romans 9 verse 2 when you understand hell you understand how Paul writes verse 2 he says oh that i have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And why does he have this anguish and sorrow? He says, verse three, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I'm talking about these Israelites. He says he wished he could take their place. See, Paul's great sorrow is over the fact that many Jews will be condemned and accursed because they've rejected Christ. He goes into greater detail on this topic later in Romans 9:31. He says, "Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works." They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. And so why has Israel then been, become the recipients of God's curse, of God's accursedness? Well, because they have rejected their Messiah. Many have rejected their Messiah because they stumbled over Christ. Because they thought getting to God was purely based on works of the law, not the gospel grace in Christ. And that's not just a Jewish problem today. If you ask the general person walking down the street if they think that they will get to heaven, and what do they say? Eh, Probably. Why, you ask, and they say, I'm a pretty good person. It's the same exact thing. Because they think they can get to heaven based on the good that they do rather than based on Christ. They don't understand that Jesus is the perfect once for all substitute sacrifice for sins and that those without Christ are accursed Paul puts it very simply in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, he is to be accursed. You might say condemned. Now go back to how Paul describes his anguish in verse 2. This isn't your run-of-the-mill, I'm sad, oh man, I'm gutted after my team lost last night. No, this is nothing like this. Look at what Paul says in verse 2, I have a great sorrow He says, I had this great sorrow, downcast in every way. Sometimes this phrase of a great sorrow is accompanied by a wish that God would just take our lives. This is the intensity of the sorrow that Paul feels. He wishes as as if it were that he, he were dead. It's how sad he is. And then what else does he say? I have unceasing anguish in my heart This anguish could be mental anxiety or or physical pain that you might feel. Anguish is what a parent feels when their children are dying or are lost to the world. Anguish is what those feel who are burned with fire. It never seems to stop. And yet this anguish isn't cooled after a few months of healing. It is incessant. It is unceasing anguish in Paul's heart. Why? Because people do not know Christ and are going to hell. Is this how you feel when your family member doesn't know Christ? Is this how you feel when your neighbor doesn't follow Jesus? Is there a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart? Or are you just happy that you have some stable friendships? Are you just happy that you've got a successful person next door and they're not kind of uh, a big fire sale and a bunch of a mess? Are you just happy that they're kind of a, a generally good person? Look, Paul's sorrow, his anguish is literally always there, unending, he says, for his brothers, for his kinsmen who don't know Jesus. And to picture his sorrow, Paul uses hyperbole. He wishes for what is impossible. If it could help convict, help transform the hearts of his family, he would be accursed in their place. That's what he says in verse 3, right? Look at the text. For I could wish if it were even possible, you might translate that. For I could wish if it were even possible. Of course, it isn't. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, that I were accursed and cut off for Christ. Paul's anguish is so great, he'd be willing to take their place in hell under God's eternal curse if it meant that some would come to know Jesus. It's kind of like Moses after the golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32. You remember that. God tells Moses as he goes down with the Ten Commandments that the people have abhorred and committed adultery, as it were, and worshipped this golden calf. And what does Moses do? Moses pleads with God to blot out his own name out of the book of life in place of Israel to save them from God's wrath. So Paul borrows the same idea show just how seriously his heart breaks for his fellow Israelites. Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And why was it so important for Paul to clarify that his heart breaks for unbelievers, especially unbelieving Jews? You see, Paul has said things, although true, might sound a bit anti-Jewish. Like Romans 2.24, he says, The name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And Romans 3.9, he said, Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. And so Paul introduces his anguish for his brothers, confirming before God that he is speaking truth. Romans 9 verse 1, he he introduces this, this sorrow with these things. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit see, Paul is speaking as a Christian, as one who is united to Christ. Paul is speaking as a Christian, one who has been captured by the powerful work of God, the Holy Spirit. And so he reminds everyone, every word that he speaks, even in his deep anguish, is not just hyperbole here. This is speaking as if he is standing before God. My heart is breaking. And if it were even possible, I wish that I could be accursed. That is how much my heart breaks for my people. Wouldn't we do well to keep in mind that we speak as Christians always? That we're always speaking when we bear the name of Christ as a Christian. So when your anger boils over, your grumbling shows at work, you obviously stretch the truth to appear a little bit better than you are. What are you saying about the power of Christ in your life? What are you saying about the role of the Holy Spirit to convict and grow and help within? Paul says it so clear in verse 1, I am absolutely truthful as I express deep and abiding sorrow over the loss. It is a sorrow we might even call an enduring depression today, and I am telling the truth. See, Paul doesn't have a laissez-faire approach to unbelievers, does he? In spite of such a strong view of God's sovereignty and salvation, Paul's heart breaks for everyone who is not united to Christ. In spite of such obvious sins against Christians committed by many Jews, Paul's heart obviously breaks for his kinsmen. Oh, beloved, does your heart break over the damned? Does it break over those who seem to be marching on their way to hell? Or do you scoff at the idea of ministering to those who seem to be your enemies? Are you like Jonah, who thinks that there's no way that I should ever help those who would persecute me and my family? Listen, God doesn't call us to take up arms over personal injustices, He calls us to have hearts that are broken for those who do not know Jesus. For our great constant sorrow to be over precious image-bearing human beings who do not know Jesus. Does your heart break? See, the starting point for our motive to share the gospel must be sorrow. Sorrow over men heading to hell. And our second motive to share God's glorious gospel is kind of the positive side, okay? We have intense sorrow, but we also have a great blessing. That great blessing that we have is God's electing love, God's love that has been shown certainly to us Paul's already expounded on the wonders of God's electing love in the end of Romans 8, about how God foreloved every Christian before the foundation of the world, about how God's predestination is not based on us, but on him, and thus is completely certain to happen in his timing. This is a whole argument of the end of Romans 8. It's meant to comfort us, to encourage us, to help us when we feel like we are weak. But still, you might ask, what about Israel? What went wrong with God's chosen people? Weren't they God's chosen people too? Weren't they elect? Weren't they promised his love, his care, his special protection and guidance? And what are we to think now that some of the blessings, some of the gifts from God, some of the covenant language even is applied to Christians who are mostly Gentiles at this point? Things like adopted as children of God. That wasn't first used of Christians. That was first used of God's people, Israel. Recipients of God's word. Participants in God's covenant promises. Since these are now part of God's blessed gifts to the church, Is God done with Israel? If so, then how can God be faithful to his promises? Well, of course he is faithful, and no, he's not done with Israel. And so Paul reminds us when we see most Jews who reject Jesus as Messiah, look what he says in verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, right? It's not as though God's choosing power has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you are ethnically Jewish doesn't mean you belong to God. And to make his point, we'll peek ahead into Romans chapter 9 and see even within the immediate descendants of Abraham, not all of them were chosen by God. In order that it will be clear that salvation has always been based not on whether we do enough good, not even based on our choosing God, but based on God's electing love for his own. Look at Romans 9 verse 11. Speaking of Jacob and Esau, he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, his purpose of choosing, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that is God, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And this is exactly what he says of all Christians too. We are sovereignly chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be a part of his eternal family. He foreloved us. He predestined us. He elect us or, or chose us and then made sure that we were saved in his time, calling us through the power of the gospel in Christ. So even as Paul anticipates the doubters, those who doubt his love for Jews, he also anticipates the doubters who might think perhaps Perhaps our salvation isn't as sure as we thought it would. Perhaps someone or something could separate us from the love of God. And they say, you know, isn't that what happened with the Jews who reject Jesus? And so as Romans 9 begins to blossom, he not only tells us of his great sorrow over the damned, but he continues to show us that God's electing love has always been at work in the Jews. God's sovereignty has always been effectual in Israel's past, present, and future, and in fact is now true of all Christians, Jew and Gentile alike. It's fascinating to see, as we're about to see here, the language used in the Old Testament that speaks of God's work in the Jews, that the same language earlier in Romans was applied to Gentile Christians too. And so as we think of our greatest blessing, we're reminded that we are a part of God's family just like Israel. We are, first point here, adopted as children with God's fatherly care. We are adopted as children with God's fatherly care. Speaking of Christians, Paul is abundantly clear. Part of God's work of salvation is that we are adopted into his family. Look at Romans 8, verse 14. Romans 8, verse 14. This speaks of everyone who is a Christian. There's no such thing as a a Christian who hasn't quite been adopted into God's family or isn't quite, uh, you know, a a child of of his. You know, if we belong to Christ, we are in God's family. For he says, verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, we have intimate relationship with God who created us. And then he says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then we're heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. But now back in Romans 9, he reminds us that adoption language was first used of Israel. Look at verse 4. Romans 9 verse 4 it says they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption now before we get to the significance of God's adoption here I we have to kind of spend a moment noticing the structure of verse 4 these blessings that belong to Israel they're three groups of pairs of three one two three one, two, three. And the first is parallel with the fourth, and the second is parallel with the fifth, and the third is parallel with the sixth. So there's groupings of, of these six blessings that belong to Israel. So adoption, one. The glory, two. The covenants, three. And then parallel to adoption is the giving of the law. And then parallel to the glory is worship. And then parallel to the covenants is the promises. All right, so that's how we're going to understand these couplings of these blessings that God gives to Israel. And so when we recognize that the blessing that has been given to Israel that belongs to Israel, we see that it is adoption and, what is it? The giving of the law. To help us understand what it means to be blessed, to be adopted into God's family, Paul also tells Israel that they were given the law. Think of it like this. How cruel would it be? For you to adopt a child and then to let said child just essentially raise themselves as if they were orphans. Without any instruction, without any help, without any guidance along the way. You see, essential to growth, essential to fatherly care is knowing how to live, learning how to think rightly about the world. And so we see God is not a cruel father, but a loving father who reveals truth, who gives us his word, training us to know how to think, how to understand our purposes in life, how to direct us in this life. And one of the most colorful illustrations of God's adoptive love and how he provides for his own is found in Ezekiel chapter 16. You can just listen as I read this. Uh, I'm going to read just a couple of verses here. Ezekiel 16 verse 4. Listen to how Ezekiel puts God's adoption of Israel. It says, and as for your birth on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, "'Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, "'nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. "'No, I pitied you to do any of these things "'to you out of compassion for you. "'But you were cast out on the open field, "'for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. "'And when I passed by you,' God says, "'and saw you wallowing in your blood, "'I said to you, in your blood, live. "'I said to you in your blood, live.'" live." And I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. He goes on to say, and later in the passage, verse 10, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And he goes on and on and on to talk about he, how he provides for his people. Isaiah 44.2 says that God chose Israel to belong to him and then sent her prophets to reveal his word and help her know how to live, how to think, how to act. He sent Moses to give the law, to teach her how to grow, how to order herself as a people, and why they needed to look forward to a Messiah. See, adoption is not simply a one-time act, rescuing a dying newborn out in a field. But adoption is an ongoing blessing of fatherly care that God gives us through his revealed word to allow us to flourish and thrive. This is the same care that the Lord says belongs to Christians now. We've been adopted into his family and entrusted with his words that are to guide and direct our lives. So, what do you do with God's word? Is it, is it like pure milk in your life, something you desire, like a newborn desires milk? Is it the meat that far surpasses any cut of filet or juicy brisket? Come on, I know it's barbecue season. I know that you love your meat, okay? And so, think about it. Do you desire God's word like you desire those things? Do you need God's word? Like you feel like you need some good barbecue or any food, even air. See, God's word is the main way that God extends his fatherly care to us. It's how the Holy Spirit speaks clearly to us. So why don't we read the Bible? I have a summer challenge for you, okay? Okay. I want you to consider if you choose to do this challenge to pick a partner from church. Can't just be your spouse here. You should be a partner from church. Somebody in addition to your spouse and choose a three-month reading plan and keep each other accountable and stick to it. Some of you have started this in January and I've heard are continuing to do it and that is great. But many of you in this room simply don't read your Bibles all that often. You don't have to raise your hand God knows who you are it can be simple your reading plan here like reading the Gospels this summer your goal is to read Matthew Mark Luke and John maybe it's to read the epistles the epistles of Paul maybe it's to read Genesis because you haven't read Genesis and you don't even know how long or it can be a little bit more involved and intense like reading the entirety of the New Testament Or maybe you could read Romans every four days, that's four chapters each day, and get through the book of Romans for a whole month and then do the same thing again for the month of July. Whatever you decide to do, the possibilities are endless and the choice is yours. But my challenge to you is grab a partner and keep tabs on a reading plan. You can even listen to God's word if you feel like you can't read it like that, okay? Just expose yourself regularly, faithfully to God's word. Because that's how God's fatherly care is extended to you. It's how you're able to listen to his fatherly advice by immersing yourself in his words. Well, another blessing of God's electing love is number two, we are able to worship in glory. Point number two here, we are able to worship in glory. So God uniquely dwelt among the Israelites. His visible presence was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And he gave very specific instructions on how to worship him. And so Paul says part of God's electing love for Israel, part of God's choosing of Israel was to help Israel understand his glory and how to worship him. Look at verse four again. They are Israelites and to them belong, the second one, the glory, and then the fifth one, the worship. To Israel belongs the glory or experiencing God's glory and then the knowledge of how to worship God. To, to help you see this, this time I want you to turn Go back to Leviticus chapter 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Grab your few Bible, if you don't have one. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book in the beginning of the Old Testament. Maybe your pages are stuck together in that part of your Bible, and that's okay. We're going to get into Leviticus chapter 9, because I want you to see just a snapshot of the glory and worship that is on display for Israel. Leviticus 9 tells us the details of Moses and Aaron offering a sin offering, a peace offering, and a burnt offering. There's three offerings, and we're going to look at them in, in detail in a little bit. A sin offering, a peace offering, and a burnt offering, and they offer it just as God has commanded. Each offering was to remind the people of their relationship with God. I mean, think about it, the sin offering. What do you think a sin offering was meant to remind people of? Their own sin, right? In fact, the sin offering would have been offered every single morning to remind the people of Israel that they had sinned the day before and they needed a sacrifice for sins. And then you had the peace offering. That peace offering was to, be, to remind the Israelites that they desperately needed peace with God and that in their own sinful natural state, they were not just neutral before God. No, they were at war with God, and so an offering was to remind them that they needed peace Peace with God and then we understand there's a burnt offering a burnt offering is where the portion a portion of the offering is totally consumed by fire to remind the Israelites that a well a, a, a expensive animal the first fruits of their herd the first fruits of their um, uh, uh, their crops even were to be given to God and burned up on the altar to reflect that everything they have goes to God to reflect the response of a wholehearted commitment to follow God. And so Aaron offers these three offerings in front of the tabernacle as thousands of people watch with rapt attention. And we kind of pick up the scene at the end of these offerings. Look at Leviticus 9 verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and he blessed them and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they had come out they blessed the people and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people and fire came out from before them as Yahweh consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So, so, so I want you to notice a couple of things here. The worship that was prescribed to Israel is very intentional. It was to help them understand who God was as holy and glorious and who they were as sinful and needy. They worshipped and they were to worship in such a way that helped them to depend on God. But their worship also came with some miraculous displays of glory, right? And the people's response is understandable. If, If fire came out and just consumed this thing that was on the altar, I mean, wouldn't you fall down on your face and go like, I can't believe I'm here. Please fire God. Do not let this fire come on me. And that is an appropriate response when you think of the glory of God. When you think of the holiness of God. Now you'd think that after multiple experiences like that, the people would understand that God cares very much, not just that they worship him, but how they worship him. There should be a right fear and trembling on all the congregation. But along come Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and they make up their own way of coming to God. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. Perhaps they thought, you know, wouldn't it be good if we changed things up a bit and developed this new way of worshiping God? If we, too, got to experience the glory of God. Wrong, it was deadly dangerous. Look what happens in verse 2. And fire then comes out from before Yahweh and consumed Nadab and Abihu, and they died before Yahweh. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what Yahweh has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or or seen as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And so Aaron held his peace. These were his sons. See, this shows us that God cares deeply how he is to be worshiped. Beloved, that is why we, as we plan our worship services, we aim to do every week, whenever we gather, what God explicitly commands us to do in his word. We are not free to take out the preaching of the word for a talk or a panel discussion or some play. We are not free to take out singing or reading the word. We aim to worship God as Christians, how God commands us to worship him. We never want to offer strange fire or unauthorized fire. So like Israel, because God's electing love and his explicit commands in scripture have been given to Israel about how to worship him, how to understand his glory, we too can worship God and see the splendor of his glory as we do what we are called to do week in and week out. We're able to worship in glory. That's one of the blessings of God's electing love. Well, there's a third blessing of God's electing love. We are number three here, participants in God's covenant promises. And go back to Romans chapter 9. We are participants in God's covenant promises. Paul gives a third pair of God's blessings to Israel that the church also has now experienced. He says "The thirdly in verse 4, and they are Israelites and to them belong the covenants and... Then the last one, the promises. Covenants is a much more specific technical promise. Promises is intentionally broad; to include anything that God promises to Israel in his word. The general idea of promise and fulfillment language is is very much around for the church too. Jesus promised to send his son, and he did. And Jesus himself promises to send the Holy Spirit to us, and he did. Jesus promised to rise from the dead, and he did. He promised to build his church on the back of Peter's confession that he is the Messiah, and guess what he did? He continues to build the church on the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And Paul just promised that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and of course, nothing will. But then there's also the covenants that God gave to Israel. These are specific promises given to God's people to direct his plan to redeem the whole world through Israel. And we see some of these in the Old Testament. First we got the Noahic covenant, they'll never flood the earth again. When we have the Abrahamic covenant, and God gives Abraham three blessings, right? or three elements to his covenant promises. He says, number one, I'm gonna give you a people, a people that will be more than the numbers of the stars of the heaven or the sands of the shore. And Israel has indeed been a people and continues to be a people. And then he says, I will give you a land which you will inherit forever. And that is yet to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. And then he says, I will bless the whole world through your offspring. As he then looks forward to Christ. And so then we see the Davidic covenant that talks about how David would have a son who would then bless the whole world. And then, of course, we see the new covenant, the new covenant that is made with Israel, but then is also participated in by the church, applied to the church. We're not going to look there, but Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 are the main two places that this covenant language is used uh, in the new covenant And a hallmark of God's new covenant blessings to us is a new heart. And what does God give us when we are in Christ? A new heart. And that's incredible. See, the New Testament teaches us in Hebrews and even in Romans 9 through 11 that the new covenant made with Israel now has been extended to include the participation of Gentiles, people who had no concept of God. So did you ever stop to think just how profound this blessing is for, for you, most of you who are, who are Gentiles? That even though you come from pagan nations, nations who did not know God, you now can have intimate, worshipful, fatherly relationships with God through Jesus? Without participation in God's new covenant promises to Israel, without, without having been grafted in, as it were, we would not know God's salvation. You see, we are redeemed in spite of our heritage. And so we need to remember what Israel forgot in those three offerings. We need to remember that we need a sin offering. We need to remember that we need to be at peace with God. And we need to remember that we need to give everything to God. We need to remember that Christ alone is that offering that we are now participants in these blessings, these covenant blessings through Christ. And so as Paul concludes his list of blessings given to Israel that all Christians now experience, he considers Jesus. And so lastly, we have, last point here, intimate knowledge of the King of Kings. We have intimate knowledge of the King of Kings. Think about the glorious mystery that a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago is our precious Lord and Savior, the one that we pray to, the one that we talk to daily, the one who grants us intimate access to the throne room of heaven, so our prayers do not ascend, as it were, to a brass sky. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, God, very God, and guess what? We know him intimately. But first, he came as the Jewish Messiah to the Jews. Look at verse 5. He says, to them belong the patriarchs. Think of Abraham, who was told that his son would one day be the conduit through which God would bless the whole world. It's the patriarchs who are in the lineage of Jesus. And so he says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, the Jewish people, according to the flesh, is the Christ The Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name. It is the Messiah. It is the promised one, the coming king of kings. And Jesus, through Mary, physically, according to the flesh, descended from David and Abraham. He is very much a Jew, fulfilling Jewish prophecies. But he was not simply a man. Jesus, of course, is God And so we see at the end of verse 5, to the Jews belong, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And so we see Jesus clearly as God who took on flesh. He is our single greatest blessing, and we are literally tethered to him, one with him. And that intimacy is what we're about to celebrate, even as we take the Lord's Supper. as we close, let's keep our heads wrapped on the theme of the text. Paul has given us two motivations to share the gospel, right? Our great sorrow over men and women who are heading to hell without Christ and our great blessing of God's electing love, his glorious and sure salvation that comes through knowing Christ. And that motivated Paul to write what he does in Romans 10.1. brothers. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. And so we should be simultaneously rejoicing and weeping. Rejoicing over salvation and weeping over those who are going to hell. And reminded then that we have a great message that the world needs to hear. As Paul speaks of his own motivation to share the gospel to the Corinthians, he says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This dual motivation, a broken heart for the lost, overflowing with God's gospel grace, motivates, to sh- motivates us to share the gospel. The gospel that we sung about this morning and, and we'll sing about in just a few minutes. Our response is, to this gospel is perfectly captured in the song that we're about to sing. Come thou fount of every blessing, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy are never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise his name. I'm fixed upon it. Name of God's redeeming love. This should mark the Christian's heart desiring to worship God with all that we are because his blessings are indeed profound. Stay motivated, my friends. Keep gospel ministry urgent. And as you challenge each other to read the Bible this summer, spend time praying for the people in your life that you aim to have gospel conversations with before the summer's end. May that be your goal too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to study your word and to be reminded of Paul's gospel motivation, his heart's desire to share the gospel with his fellow Jewish people and Gentiles as he goes to Spain or desires to go to Spain. Lord, this gospel motivation is centered on his broken heart as people go to hell and on his strong desire to see the blessed glories of the gospel spread throughout all the world. Give us that same dual desire of our heart. Help our hearts to break over the lost and help our hearts to be overcome with great joy as we consider the gospel. And Lord, now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, help us to look back at what you have accomplished on the cross and to remember that you paid the full price penalty for our sins as you hung on the cross and help us also to look forward to that day in which you will return you promise to return physically and come and bring us into the glories with you help us as well to look up and to appreciate that we now have intimate access to you through christ Help us to look within as we prepare to take the supper and use this time as a time of introspection to see if there are areas of our life which we need to confess sin or or we need to turn from. And lastly, help us to look around as we see the glories of the blessed church family that we have, that we all are one with Christ. And so even as we partake of this one bread, so then we are one body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.